there's, uh, there's something incredibly fitting uh, to me getting to preach through a three-week series in our church called Magic Kingdom. Uh, because like the real Magic Kingdom, I don't know if there's such a thing as real magic, but a real Magic Kingdom in Orlando has been actually quite central to uh, a lot of my life. I, I grew up in one of those families that kind of made it a tradition to do the annual pilgrimage down to the Mecca of children's entertainment, Orlando, Florida, and to go and visit the Magic Kingdom every year. And when I was a kid, and by kid, I mean like really little, but like all the way up to my mid or you know later teens, I still loved to go to the Magic Kingdom because it was literally a magical place. Like it was just a, it wasn't literally a magical place, but it was a wonderful place. It's the happiest place on earth. Just this mythic place where it was just, everything was so much fun and everyone was so grand. And it was just like, as a kid, everywhere I went, everything I did, I was just filled with wonder at this place. Well, you know, uh, fast forward 30 some odd years and my wife and I have our own little people and we decide we're going to take our own kids down there to experience the magic of Magic Kingdom. And... Um, I'm going to tell you, I wasn't prepared for how different the experience is as an adult <laughs> compared to when I was a kid. When you're a kid, like a little seven-year-old, you don't realize that it's 110 degrees outside with the humidity, right? Like, you don't realize how excruciatingly boring 99% of these rides are. You don't realize how horrendously long these wait times are, right? Like four and a half hours to meet Elsa and Anna, which my girls did not do. My girls are very familiar with the minor Disney characters who never have a lineup. Those, who, those are the ones that my girls know. But it's just like it's complete. You realize that the happiest place on earth isn't all that happy, that the smiles are kind of plasticky, that it's all sort of a veneer, that this mythological America that it's remembering is just a myth that never existed. And, um, and suddenly your experience of the whole thing is different because your experience no longer lives up to the expectation. Einstein once said, happiness is expectation or experience divided by expectation. If your expectation is zero, your happiness is infinite. It's different when you have expectations that go unmet. And I suspect as we dig into the story today in Matthew chapter 21, that we're going to discover that some of us are like some of them who had expectations of Jesus that went unmet. So we're, we're getting back to the story, the life story of Jesus as told by his friend Matthew who wrote a biography about him. And we've been in this book for four years. We started November 2012. And we have been journeying with Jesus through his entire life. We've just watched Jesus for four years do what Jesus does. We've listened to him teach about the way of love, about loving God and loving ourselves and loving each other and loving the whole world and about how as a community as a church he's called us to be a community of love where the first are last and the last are first and where other people give up their place to to serve each other and so on we've watched people 
We watch Jesus do what he does, bring healing and hope and restoration into people's lives, forgiveness and transformation into their sinfulness, healing into their brokenness, sort of miraculously intervening in people's lives. We've, and we've watched people react to Jesus. The forgotten and the left behind and the ignored all flock to Jesus because he's opened up this space to embrace them for the first time. But the powerful and the rich and the religious kind of push Jesus away because he unsettles the systems on which they've built their lives. And all of it, all of what we've seen is Jesus being the Messiah that God has sent into the world. But all of it's kind of been on the down low. Jesus has really shied away from publicity. right? Every time someone figures out that he's the Messiah, he tells them to shut up and not tell anybody. Right? He's constantly slipping away from the crowds and, and running off into secrets so that you know, he can kind of escape from that expectation that people would put on him of being the Messiah. But all of his entire life is building towards the moments that we begin to study now as we turn to Matthew chapter 21 and enter this kind of final phase of Jesus' life, the last week of his physical, his human life on earth, which is the rest of the book. And it's right at this moment, this, the beginning of this final week of Jesus' life, that he enters into a new space in the way that he carries himself. It's this moment that Jesus decides to announce to the world that he is the Messiah, which is exactly what happens in the text that we're going to look at this morning. Jesus basically stages this massive publicity stunt to let the entire nation of Israel know that he's the Messiah that's been sent by God. And <clears throat> excuse me, Jesus picks <clears throat> this moment as like this perfect moment to announce to Israel that he's the Messiah. It's a pragmatically perfect moment. He's, he's going to do this since Matthew 16. Jesus has been traveling with his disciples towards Jerusalem where they're going to celebrate the, the festival of the Passover in the city of Jerusalem. It was one of three festivals in the, the Jewish religious calendar where Jews were invited to come down to Jerusalem and spend the week and celebrate the Passover. And so this was a one or of three times in the year where Jews from all over the country had gathered in the city and it was literally overflowing. Uh, the Jewish law said that if you were coming for Passover, you had to stay in the city of Jerusalem. Well, there was just no way there was room for all these pilgrims in the city of Jerusalem. And so the, the religious leaders basically dubbed every town within a two-mile radius to be the greater Jerusalem area. And uh, that's, how, that's how overflowing it was. It was the perfect time because everyone was there. But it was this culturally perfect moment as well. Celebrating the Passover was the perfect time for Jesus to announce to the nation that he was the Messiah. Because Passover was all about Israel celebrating a moment in their history where God miraculously intervened and set them free from the tyranny of Egyptian rule when they were living in Egypt and basically slaves to the Pharaoh. And God uses this prophet named Moses to set his people free and to invite them into a life of freedom and hope and to bring them into this land that he had given them and so on. Passover was the moment when they celebrated how God had set them free as a people. Well, in the first century in Israel, 
Most people believed that they were living through another one of those seasons of slavery. They were living under the oppression of, of Roman tyranny, ruled by Caesar. Their land was filled with invading and occupying Roman troops. They were living under the burden of this crushing taxation that had left most of them living in stupid poverty. They had been reduced to slavery in their own homeland. And Passover was the time every year where they would gather together in Jerusalem and hope and pray and beg that God would send a rescuer like Moses to set them free excuse me, from the tyranny of the Romans to set them free. They believed that the Messiah would come, the one who would be their king. That's what Messiah means. It means king. It would be a Messiah who would come that would be like the King David, who was the greatest king Israel ever had a thousand years earlier who destroyed the enemy of God, the Philistines, and he set the people free to become an independent nation living in peace and prosperity and freedom and happiness and joy. And they were praying that God would send a king like David, the son of David, they would call him, to set them free. Passover was the moment that they prayed that God would do this. Jesus picked the absolutely perfect spot to reveal that he was the Messiah. And in Matthew chapter 21, it says this, verse one, it says, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, and then Jesus goes and gives instructions to his disciples. Jesus chooses the Mount of Olives to be the place where he reveals his identity as the Messiah, the King that God has sent to set Israel free. Um, the Mount of Olives was... Uh, one of three mountain peaks, or not mountain, but peaks along a, a four-kilometer ridge that ran north-south on the east side of the city of Jerusalem. It was the place that all the pilgrims had to pass through uh, as they made that trek of the last two miles towards the city of Jerusalem for Passover. So the, the whole crowd was kind of gathered there. But more than that, there was an ancient prophecy in Israel that foretold of a time when the nations would gather around the city of Jerusalem and ransack it and raid it and destroy it and reduce the people of Israel to slaves just like the Romans had. But that it says in the prophecy that God would show up and he would set his feet on the Mount of Olives and he would fight for his people and set them free. And the rabbis would teach that it was on the Mount of Olives that the Messiah would reveal himself to the people. Jesus picks like the perfect way of illustrating that he was the Messiah sent by God. It says this, it says, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. Down in verse six, the disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them and they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. Don't think these donkeys are incidental to the story that Jesus had just gotten tired of walking and now he wanted to ride his way into the city. The donkeys are the entire key to the story, to understanding who Jesus is saying that he is. Um, see, the donkeys 
are the mode of transportation for kings. Jesus sends his disciples to go and requisition these donkeys so that he can ride them into Jerusalem. Well, only a king or a general has the power to requisition transportation like that. But more than that, in the ancient world, it was said of the children of royalty that they were the ones who ride donkeys. In the ancient world, royalty ride on donkeys. Everyone else walks. Right? If you're poor, if you're a peasant, like Jesus was, you walk everywhere you go. If you are royalty, you ride a donkey. That's, in fact, the sons of donkeys. That's how they can tell who the royalty is. Because they're riding while everyone else walks. There are stories in Israel's history about kings who are riding on donkeys towards their coronation. Actually, King David himself rode from the Mount of Olives on two donkeys down to the city of Jerusalem to claim his throne. His son Solomon, the literal son of David, mimicking his father, rode a donkey into Jerusalem for his coronation. When you're a king, you ride to Jerusalem on a donkey to be crowned, to claim your throne. But more than that even, that ancient prophecy that said that God was going to set his feet on the Mount of Olives and fight for his people and set them free. It says this, verse 4, Matthew says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. This is the prophecy. Say to daughter Zion, to Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The prophet had said, when your king comes, he's going to come riding on, on a colt with a donkey alongside. There's going to be two animals and he will be riding one of them into Jerusalem. That's how you're going to know that the Messiah has come. The rabbis used to say that when the Messiah comes, he would show himself on the Mount of Olives and then ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's how you know you're looking at the king. Right, so think about this moment. Jesus is staging this massive publicity stunt in front of the largest crowd he's been around in his entire career. The crowd is growing the closer you get to Jerusalem because people are pouring in from all over the country to enter into the city. In, in Matthew 20, it says that the crowd was large. In Matthew 21, it says it was huge. Huge. That's my best Donald Trump, by the way. It was huge. Fantastic crowd. It was fantastic um, but, he, but it says the crowd was, the, it literally says the crowd was the largest crowd Jesus had seen. And here he is in the midst of this crowd. He could have just anonymously slipped into the city of Jerusalem and nobody would have noticed. No, here he is. He's up on a donkey riding above everybody else. He singled himself out as the most visible figure in, the, in this entire contingent of pilgrims who are riding into Jerusalem. He's actually breaking rabbinic law in order to do this, the rabbi said, if you're pilgrimaging to Jerusalem, you walk to the city. And Jesus says, unless you're the Messiah, then you ride. And the people immediately, like they immediately get what Jesus is doing. They're picking up what he's putting down. In verse 8, it says this, a very large crowd, this huge crowd, 
spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowd sees Jesus riding on a donkey and they begin to take on their outer cloaks and they just throw them down on the road in front of them. They're kind of making this impromptu red carpet for the king to ride into Jerusalem. There's a story in the Old Testament about King Jehu Climbing the temple steps for his coronation as king. And people throw their garments in front of him so that he walks this the kind of red carpet. But, but more deeply than that, in the Bible, people's clothes often represent themselves, their life. And people are throwing their lives down in front of Jesus in this act of submission. And saying, I'm, you are my king and I'm totally submitted to you. There are other people who are cutting branches off the trees and waving them. It's, this moment is reminding them of another moment in their history where um, 200 years before Jesus was born, the Greeks had occupied and invaded Israel and under the leadership of this general named Simon Maccabeus, the Jews defeated the Greeks and drove them out of the land and became a free people. And as Simon Maccabeus walked into the temple, people waved palm branches and sang and praised God because God had set them free. In fact, they sing and they, they praise God here too. It says in verse 9, The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. They begin to sing this song, uh, Psalm 18 from the Old Testament. They sing this song that they all know because this is the song you're supposed to sing while you're on pilgrimage down to Jerusalem. But they burst into this song and they sing Hosanna, which means God save us now. But they add this little bit that says, Hosanna to the son of David. God, in effect, they're saying, God, thank you that you are saving us now through the Messiah who has come, through Jesus. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is this Messiah that you've sent in your name to do your bidding and to do your will, to accomplish your purpose in Israel. They're celebrating what God is doing through Jesus, who has declared himself to be the King, the Son of David, the Messiah, who has come to set God's people free. But not everybody is excited. Verse 10, it says, When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and they asked, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. That, it says they were stirred. The word is related to the Greek word seismos, which means earthquake. They were shaken. Literally means they were filled with great anxiety and anguish and fear and apprehension. The, the, the pilgrims outside were excited because they believed that Jesus was coming to fix everything that was wrong in their lives. Those who lived in the city <clears throat> were afraid. <clears throat> Excuse me. They were afraid that Jesus was coming and wasn't going to make their lives better, was going to make their lives worse. You see, if you live in Jerusalem, you have no king except Caesar. Those who lived in Jerusalem had come to this uneasy truce with the Roman forces that occupied their city. 
And they didn't want anything to unsettle that. Well, somebody who rides into the city claiming to be the king of the Jews is basically declaring war against Rome, throwing down the gauntlet. And they know that the Roman governor is going to hear about this little publicity stunt that Jesus has done. And he's going to call the troops from around the country and they're going to land on the city of Jerusalem like a sumo wrestler. And they're going to raise that city. They're going to burn it to the ground to snuff out this rebellion against Caesar that has to be stopped. They're afraid that because of Jesus, their life is going to get much, much worse. As I've been reflecting on this story, I've kind of begun to suspect that those two different reactions to Jesus are represented in our community as well. I know at different times they've been represented in my life. That there are some of us who are excited about Jesus and excited about who Jesus is. Like the, like the pilgrims on the road were excited about Jesus because they were convinced that Jesus was about to come into Jerusalem to kick you know, the Romans' butts to chase them out of the land of Israel, to set Israel free, to usher in this era of peace, just like King David did, and and to usher in this era of prosperity and happiness. They were excited about Jesus because they believed that Jesus was coming to fix everything that was wrong with their life. He was the answer to every prayer that they had been praying. They thought Jesus was riding into the city like Prince Charming, right? like a knight in shining armor, riding a white horse, kicking butt and taking names and uh, making everything right again. But Jesus didn't ride in on a white horse. He rode in on a donkey which was a symbol of peace. Jesus didn't come in like a knight in shining armor. He came in as someone who was humble and peaceable. He didn't come in to pick a fight with the Romans. In fact, seven or five days later, Jesus was hanging dead on a cross. And the very pilgrims who were so excited about Jesus coming into the city seven days later were drifting away from the city in disillusionment and disappointment because Jesus hadn't delivered everything they had expected that Jesus would do. And I wonder how many people in our community are living in that space right now where you are or you have been excited about Jesus and you've put your faith in Jesus and you've decided you want to be a follower of Jesus because you believe that what Jesus wants to do is sort of swoop in and fix everything that's broken with your life. And maybe there's some of us who've been down that road a while and you're starting to drift into that zone of disappointment and disillusion. There are times where if you were honest You would say you're tempted to think, you know, if Jesus loved me, then why do I still not have a job? If Jesus loved me, why are my kids still going off the rails? If Jesus loved me, how come I don't have a spouse? Or how come I don't have a kid? If Jesus loved me, why is my marriage imploding? 
or friendships falling apart. If Jesus loved me, why am I still lonely? Why am I still depressed? Why am I still battling mental illness? Why am I still battling this addiction? Why am I still fighting this destructive habit that tears my life apart? See, if Jesus loved me, I thought he would have fixed all this by now. And if, if you're really honest, I bet there's some who would say they're getting to the place where they feel they're starting to drift away and to say, you know what, I tried Jesus and he just didn't work for me. But what if that's not why Jesus came? What if Jesus didn't come like a Prince Charming riding in on a white horse to fix everything that's wrong with your life? What if Jesus came as the king to bring God's kingdom on earth, to make the world a little bit more like the world would be if God were allowed to be in charge? But what if he wanted to start with what happens inside of you rather than what happens around you? What if the kingdom of God coming in your life looked more like Jesus bringing healing to your relationship with God. You know, dealing with the brokenness and the sin in your life by bringing forgiveness and transformation through his death and resurrection. What if Jesus came so that you could learn what it means to love God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength? What if, what if the kingdom coming in your life looks more like you learning to love yourself again? To understand that you are the beloved of God. That your dignity and worth and identity are rooted in the fact that God loves you and sent his son to die for you. What if, what if that's the work that God wants to do? What if God, the kingdom of God means God teaching you to love each other again? To deal with the conflict and the divisiveness and the slander and the backbiting. And to teach us how to live with each other in love and joy and peace and patience to root the sin out of the way we relate to each other and to fill it with life and love and hope? What if what Jesus really wants to do is to teach us all how to love the world again? The lost and the least, the forgotten and left behind, our neighbor and even our enemy, as much as we love ourselves. The question is, would you still submit your life to Jesus if that's the work that Jesus wants to do. Because he can do all of that without fixing your circumstances. And in fact, sometimes it's your very circumstances that he uses to do that work in you. Now that's not to say those praying for those things are bad things. Those are all wonderful gifts and he's a good father uh, who gives good gifts to his children and I pray that God answers those prayers in your life provided that answering those prayers is the way that God can do the work that he really wants to do, which is the work that he does in your spirit. But the question is, if that's what Jesus wants to do in you, would you still submit to him? Would you still take your cloak off and throw it at his feet and say, Jesus, you are my king. My life belongs to you. I trust you and love you. Do what you need to do with me. Because that's the response that Jesus is inviting us into. I suspect that there are people who are less like the pilgrims and more like those who live in the city of Jerusalem who are catching a vision of who Jesus is and what Jesus wants to do. And it's not that you think 
that Jesus' goal is to make your whole life better. But there's a part of you that's a little bit afraid that if you give your life wholly to Jesus, he might just make your life a little bit worse. Right? This is what they were fearing, that he was going to come into the city proclaiming himself to be the king of the Jews and that was going to spark this war with Rome. And, and this lifestyle that they had established, this whatever comfortable, uneasy truce, tension-filled truce that they had managed to work out with the Romans, the, the comfort of their life that they had established was going to be unsettled by the coming of Jesus. And I think there are probably some of us who are afraid that if we fully buy into who Jesus is and what he's all about, that's going to unsettle our lives in ways that maybe we're not all that comfortable with. Maybe we're actually even a little bit afraid of. Because the, actually the, the citizens of Jerusalem had gotten Jesus all wrong, just as much as the pilgrims had, right? Because Jesus wasn't coming to fight the Romans. He was coming to fight a war against evil. He wasn't coming to rescue them from Roman injustice and oppression. He was coming to undo injustice and oppression everywhere. He wasn't coming to ignite a fire of hate. He was coming to kindle a fire of love. And the victory that Jesus was going to win was not won on the battlefield. It was won on the cross. And that's the invitation that Jesus extends to every one of us. A hundred years ago, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, the invitation of Jesus to every one of us is that we would come and die. That we would die to ourself. That we would die to our ego. That we would die to our self-centeredness. That we would die to our sin that we would die to our plans, that we would die to our goals, that we would die to all these aspirations we have about who it is that we want to become, that we would set all of that aside. Jesus says, if you want to be with me, then pick up a cross and follow me all the way to the crucifixion site. If you want to follow me, you've got to do what I do, which for Jesus was dying on the cross so that other people could experience the life of God. And Jesus Jesus now says to those who want to follow him, you've got to do what I do. You've got to do some dying so that other people can discover what it means to live. You need to follow me in this act of love. Loving people by the way that you sacrifice on their behalf. See, Jesus didn't come to be great. He didn't come to be uh, victorious in, in, the, in an earthly sense. He didn't come to be famous. He didn't come um, to be served. Jesus came to be humble and to sacrifice and to die and to give. To empty himself so that everybody else could experience the fullness of God. To die to himself so that other people could experience the life of God. And the invitation of Jesus is to follow him. The throne that Jesus comes to claim in Jerusalem is a cross. And he says, now you follow me. And here's the question. Are you willing to submit yourself to the king if it means dying to this comfortable life that you've set up for yourself? 
if it means embracing a posture of love that leads to sacrifice, that leads to death, does it, would, you, would you submit to Jesus as the king if it costs you everything? Jesus says, I came that everyone would have life and have it until it overflows. Are you willing to trust Jesus enough to lay down your life, to submit to him as the king so that he can do the work in you of restoring your life with God and with yourself, with each other in the world and inviting you into this life of sacrifice and service, of giving of yourself so that other people could experience the love of God are you willing to gamble on the fact that that is what it looks like for the kingdom of God to come in your life as it is in heaven? And that in that is life the way you've never experienced it before. Jesus came as the king. A very different kind of king bringing an upside down kind of kingdom in which life flows to all who are willing to die. Let's respond. Let's choose to submit ourselves to Jesus and experience the kingdom that he's chosen to bring. Let's pray, pray together. Dear Jesus, we foist so many expectations on you to be what you never said you were going to be, to do what you never promised to do. I pray that you would help us see with clarity who you are, to see with clarity what it is that you want to do in our lives. And would you give us the courage and the faith to lay ourselves down so that you can do in us what you always wanted to do, which is give us real life till it overflows. Help us to trust you enough to follow you as king. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.